welcome everyone to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I'm your host, Max Huber, and on this episode, Brian and I chat with Tarane Azar over Zoom about her piece titled No Justice for Black Women, The Memification of Breonna Taylor. Tara has joined us on the show before for our 2020 elections episode, and we're glad to have her back this week to discuss how the public has responded to the police killings of Black people and how the intersection of race and gender shaped those responses. We focus on the role that memes and social media played in shaping that response, and Tara gives us her account of the pros and cons of virtue signaling and slacktivism. Then, towards the end, we pivot and talk about how the alt-right uses memes to advance their hateful agenda. As usual, Tara also joins us for Class Struggle, hosted by Ariana Bennett, to tell us about one of her favorite Northeastern classes. As always, I recommend going online to nupoliticalreview.com in the opinion section to read Tara's piece for yourself. And please also take time today to participate in meaningful anti-racist activism, as well as reflecting on the past, present, and future of your role in the fight for justice. Black Lives Matter. And without further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I'm your host, Max Huber, he, him pronouns. And this week, I'm joined by my co-host, Brian Grady. Hi, Max. Thanks for having me on again. He, him pronouns. I'm a poli-sci major here at Northeastern, and I am one of the fellow producers here at Newper. And this week, Brian and I are talking with Tarane Azar about one of her pieces on memes. Tara, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. My name is Tarane Azar. I use she, her pronouns. I am a journalism and poli-sci combined major at Northeastern, and I am a magazine editor with Newper. Fantastic. We're very glad to have you on the show. I know that you were previously with us for the 2020 elections episode, and so this will be, in a sense, your second time on New Perspectives, which is really great. So, Tara, your piece about the memification of Breonna Taylor It's a really interesting read about the role of memes and social networks in social justice. And you kind of explore both the positive aspects of that and the negative aspects of it, particularly as it relates to the lack of justice for Black women who are killed by police in this country. So if you want to go ahead, if you could tell us a little bit about this piece and some of the the context for why you wrote it. Sure, Max. So this piece is really focused on the murder of Breonna Taylor and her subsequent memification. Memification in this case in particular is turning an event into an easily digestible piece of social ephemera. Um, With Breonna Taylor, she was a 26-year-old Black woman from Louisville, Kentucky, and she was murdered by the Louisville Police Department on March 13th, 2020, while they were serving a no-knock warrant. Later in the year, George Floyd, a Black man, was murdered in Minneapolis. That was in May of 2020, and we really didn't see any protests erupt about the murder of Breonna Taylor until after the murder of George Floyd. The two kind of 
combine into one in many ways in terms of demands for accountability against police brutality and for black lives. So this was a really unfortunate situation where we really didn't see attention being brought to the murder of this young black woman until there was attention being brought to another case. So what we saw online was that with all of the Black Lives Matter protests that were erupting in May of 2020 in response primarily to the murder of George Floyd, information about the case of Breonna Taylor started coming up and being spread online in particular. This was really heightened by the pandemic, but social activism online is something that we've seen for a really long time. At first it came in the form of infographics, you know, here's a number to call Louisville Police Department and demand accountability for the murder of Breonna Taylor. And then it turned into something very different. And what we saw was this slogan, this catchphrase, arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor, turned into almost the punchline of a joke by social media users, whether this was intentional, deliberate, or it was just an inadvertent side effect of meme usage online. That's really what is in question here. But the matter of the fact is that Breonna Taylor's murder was really the only one that was turned into a meme. She was a black woman. And when we are looking at other cases, primarily regarding the murder of black men at the hands of the state by police departments across the country, this memification is not something that we're seeing. So that's really what my article was centered around, exploring that dynamic and looking into the causes of why this unfortunate response came about. I know throughout your piece, something that I definitely recommend people check out online for is you bring up a lot of examples of the problematic memes about Breonna Taylor. Could you tell us off the top of your head kind of some of the ones that are particularly insensitive and memified? Totally. So just to start off, a mimetic phrase is anything that calls on a particular sentiment in a minimum of words. So MAGA, for example, is considered by many meme scholars to be a meme. Another example is Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself, right? It's like calling back to a certain particular case in a phrase that's recognizable and very easily digestible and spreadable. So having these complex ideas, these complex concepts um, in a min minimum of space, whether you want to call MAGA and Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself complex concepts, that's up to you. But arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor. That is a phrase that started coming around Honestly, with, I would say, very good intentions, right? It's like very catchy, it's very to the point, it's direct, and it's something that people can spread very easily. It can be a hashtag, and it can be whatever you want it to be, online in particular, and offline. And the purpose that that serves is that you're able to really widen the scope of communication and raising awareness about the case of Breonna Taylor in a way that can reach way more people than if you were to disseminate, say, a, an essay, for example, right? So it's gonna reach a lot more people. It's gonna kind of be that bug that reaches more people and they're like, what is this? What, who is Breonna Taylor? Who are the cops? Why are they not arrested? So when this phrase came about as maybe a positive way to spread awareness, right? Very quickly, it turned into something else. 
And what we started seeing was t-shirts with checklists that said like single, married, like, and then the last checklist was arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor. And that wasn't the only instance, but that was one that was like, whoa, someone is selling this on Etsy and they're making money off of it. There were other memes that were just like a random format, completely unrelated to Breonna Taylor, completely unrelated to police brutality, counts for, you know, calls for accountability, demanding justice, Black Lives Matter, completely unrelated, like, you know, pictures of food or like a recipe for grits and shrimp. That was another one that we saw. There was a lot of just really random stuff. And it turned, the phrase, arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor, turned from this very powerful call for action, you know, something that was being chanted at actions across the country and the world into almost a competition for attention online and who can get the most clicks off of their unrelated meme format that's hearkening back to the case of Breonna Taylor. And, you know, this started as a way to gain viral attention, to bring more attention to the case of Breonna Taylor into something that was completely unrelated and so far from the original intention that it was unfortunate to watch this happen. And I think ultimately the memification of, you know, this phrase in particular, arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor, turned into something really bad when it could have been something good that just ended at, let's, you know, raise awareness, let's share resources, and let's bring people out to the streets or, you know, increase donations to particular funds um, into something that was kind of just like a game of attention and clicks online. That's really interesting to hear about the way that Breonna Taylor's case became such a meme, so commodified and so kind of divorced from the powerful movement and demand that it represented. And I know a major point in your piece is about how the fact that of the many Black and Indigenous people of color in this country who have been murdered by police, Breonna Taylor is the one who got turned into a meme. And you bring up this very useful concept called misogynoir to kind of explain the relationship between womanhood and being Black in America. And I was hoping that you could talk a little bit more about misogynoir and why you think Breonna Taylor became a meme. Sure. So misogynoir is a term that was coined by queer Black feminist Moya Bailey, and it describes the intersection between sexism and systemic racism that informs and contributes to how Black women are socially and culturally framed in this country in particular, but on a global scale. So you have these two very real systems of oppression, sexism and systemic racism. And they come together to create this incredibly hard to navigate dynamic of just magnified obstacles. And when we talk about misogynoir, it's also largely about how black women are framed in society, culture, and in the media, right? There's like this Jezebel trope among many other stereotypical depictions of black women that frame black women as either, you know, sexual objects. That's kind of going back to 
the sexism component, but then also this racism, the, st the stereotypes that are associated with black women. They come together and they create this really harmful and very deeply ingrained depiction of black women in our society that inadvertently in informs everything <laughs> that we do today and the way that we, the ways in which we frame black women, the ways in which black women are depicted and the systems that they have to navigate. So would you largely attribute the fact that Breonna Taylor's death became a meme to this misogynoir largely, or is it another element? It's really hard to say. I would say in large part, yes, in many ways. I think that this misogynoir is something that's so deeply ingrained that whether it's a direct contributor or an underlying cause, it's gonna be playing a role regardless. And you know, misogynoir, it really describes the type of sexism that black and indigenous women of color face that's you know deeply rooted in anti-blackness and it's it's informing everything you know so the fact that the case of Breonna Taylor was the only case really that was memeified on the scale that it was i think that's very indicative of a systemic disregard for the lives of black women in this country something i'm wondering is even as we've kind of gone into the the problems that memifying a black woman's murder does, certainly there is some benefit to the the amplification effect that it has of really bringing her case into the public conscience of making so many people aware of it. Whereas, you know, if it was just reported in a newspaper somewhere, the people might have read it and thought about it. But when it becomes a meme, then it's on everyone's phone. It's on everyone's computer. It's almost inescapable to not be aware of what happened to her. And I'm curious kind of what your thoughts are on the balance of the commodification and the disrespect, as well as the, the amplification effect that seems to be present in these memes. That commodification is also really key to understanding how misogynoir plays into the situation, just because Black women are commodified largely when there's this intersection between sexism and systemic racism. That is the reality of being a Black woman, being an Indigenous woman of color in this country today. So Taylor's case went without widespread coverage for three months, right? emerging only really on a large scale in the wake of George Floyd's murder. The fact that the internet was a tool that could be utilized with memes and mimetic phrases as kind of the carriers of information made it so that Breonna Taylor's name eventually became known across the nation and across the world. There is intrinsic value to the ability of viral content to spread information and spread awareness. The problem arises when a very powerful call to action becomes a viral trend. And I think that's the distinction that we have to make, right? The key here is intention and what the intention behind the messaging, behind the content is. At first, I would say that the intention was to raise awareness and to mobilize people on the largest scales possible 
to demand justice, whatever form that can take when someone's life is taken from them, of course, but demand some form of justice and some form of accountability for the murder of Taylor. That's very valuable. And we saw that the George Floyd protests that emerged in May quickly came to also encompass Breonna Taylor and other black and indigenous people of color who have been murdered recently at the hands of the state. So what we saw with the memification of Breonna Taylor, turning her case, her life, her story, her murder into a meme was a structural gimmick. And that's a really interesting concept just because it's content that tricks social media algorithms into disseminating information on a large scale that's codified in unrelated content, like a picture of a drawing of plants or, you know, a random t-shirt, a random meme that has nothing to do with police brutality or Black Lives Matter, any, any of these concepts that we're talking about, the murder of a Black woman, completely unrelated. And these structural gimmicks arguably trick social media algorithms into spreading that information to audiences that aren't consuming content related to Breonna Taylor or the murder of Breonna Taylor or the murder of George Floyd or the murder of countless other Black people who have been murdered at the hands of the state recently. In a sense, by attaching Arrest the Cops Who Killed Breonna Taylor to these unrelated memes, unrelated images, it lets it go into people's feeds who don't pay attention to these kinds of issues, essentially. Yes, that is correct. And in the way that those memes make it, you know, possible to reach a wider audience, ultimately, with that structural gimmick comes kind of a desensitization to what exactly we're talking about. First, you know, it starts as a way to reach a wider audience, right? And to make a wider audience aware of what's happening. And then it turns into something, and it did turn into something void of meaning. And um, it's a really delicate balance, right? Like, where do we draw that line of when it was a good thing and it started being bad? I think that there's a lot of nuance to memes and this mode of communication, as with any mode of communication. And when the meaning is lost, right, we see something that was really powerful and really helpful and spread Breonna Taylor's name to be a household name, but then, you know, quickly led to something that was really void of meaning and ultimately more harmful than helpful. So you've discussed the complicated role that memes can play around a liberal issue like dealing with police violence. What role do memes play in more far-right circles? You know, some of the jokes that people can see that are quite aggressive and negative about race, gender identity, sexuality, those kinds of things. What role do those serve? And are they subject to the same complications that liberal memes can be? So the term meme was coined by evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins in 1976, meaning same or alike. And the term meme at first really spoke to any form of society and culture. Like Dawkins classified like movies and plays and theater and fashion as memes, you know, any sort of 
social construct or socially rooted concept that evolves over time and brings change and transforms but retains some element of the original form, right? When we're talking about internet memes, internet memes are really something that started on niche platforms and image boards. I would say before there were such negative connotations associated with them. Internet memes started on these niche platforms and then kind of made their way onto more mainstream platforms, right? So now we see memes on Facebook and they're in your family group chat and they're essentially everywhere that you look. But at one point, they were a very niche concept, um, internet memes in particular, and um, then they spread. So when we see memes being used by the alt-right, it's mostly on image boards like 4chan. Parler's not an image board, but there are tons of memes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And some people will argue that the, what we call now, you know, the alt-right, which is a new term, but that memes kind of belong to this group of people in nature, they don't, just because the platforms that the alt-right is using to spread this information are now associated with those movements doesn't mean that that's where they originated. But memes are used by everyone to spread information. I think it's honestly particularly valuable to the alt-right just because they're able to codify meaning in images or concepts or phrases or completely unrelated content to spread very harmful messages. And there's a value to people like the alt-right who are spreading hate to be able to conceal their intentions um, behind an image. So what we saw was that, you know, Pepe the Frog, for example, right, was co-opted by the alt-right. Pepe was just a comic book character. And then he was assigned this meaning by a group of people. Real quick, for everyone listening, they may have seen Pepe, but they might not know what Pepe is by that name. Could you describe what Pepe looks like to people? Yes. So Pepe the Frog is this anthropomorphic cartoon character. Started off actually as a comic book character in the comic Boys Club by Matt Fury. Matt is like a San Francisco-based artist. Absolutely zero ties to the alt-right in any way. Boys Club was uploaded to MySpace and it became a meme very quickly on image boards, like 4chan, for example, but just as a reaction, right? So what we saw with Pepe is that this anthropomorphic cartoon frog in some pictures is really sad and in other depictions is really happy. And so his face became a reaction image of sorts used in response to certain things. So, um, the sad frog meme is another thing that you might have heard about. That is Pepe. And so Pepe was on Tumblr and on 4chan and on Reddit and on MySpace when MySpace was a thing. And it was really picked up by the mainstream. I'm doing air quotes. The mainstream being anyone who's not on niche image boards like 4chan, for example. And the shift really came in, I believe it was 2014, when Katy Perry posted a picture of Pepe with, you know, a distinctive face and said like that feeling when you get off like a 4 a.m. flight, something to that degree, right? 
And then the people who made Pepe originally, these like niche internet users were like, we need to take Pepe back from the mainstream. Like Pepe is being taken from us. Like this is our meme. And then you see something called the poo poo pee pee Pepe's, which was like Pepe committing egregious acts. And it was an attempt at taking Pepe back from Katy Perry and Nicki Minaj and whatever mainstream establishments were like stealing Pepe from these people, whatever. Now, was this people from the alt-right trying to take Pepe back from the mainstream or were these just internet people generally? So these were internet people generally, but then it created this door almost of sorts, a window of opportunity for the alt-right to sweep in and say, all of these disgusting pictures of Pepe that you're seeing, right? The poo-poo pee-pee Pepe's. Pepe has always been ours and he is ours. It was an opportunity of sorts for Pepe to be co-opted by the alt-right because the poo-poo pee-pee Pepe's were Pepe, I know it's the funniest term, the poo-poo pee-pee Pepe's were Pepe doing disgusting things like, I don't know, throwing his feces or Pepe dressed up in some horrible depiction of something, not really with a political agenda in mind or some, you know, a particular political identifier attached to it or meaning. But Pepe was getting really gross at this point. And so the alt-right swept in and they were like, Pepe has always been ours. Pepe is ours. And at that point, we saw Pepe being used more and more in alt-right spaces. I don't even think the term alt-right was coined at this point, but what we saw in 2015, 2016 was when then candidate Donald Trump retweeted a picture of Pepe as himself, himself as Pepe. It was like a Donald Trump Pepe at a podium and like, there was a message tied to it that was like, you know, Donald Trump is standing up for us or whatever. Like Donald Trump doesn't take any shit, something like that. And Clinton's campaign posted an explainer denouncing Pepe as a hate symbol. That was really when it was just kind of sealed. The fate was sealed for Pepe. And at that point, you know, Pepe was recognized as a hate symbol. It's interesting because later in 2018, 2019, Protesters in Hong Kong reclaimed Pepe as a symbol of pro-democracy liberation from an authoritative state. And now at this point, Pepe is being used again by the mainstream in many ways and not really recognized as a hate symbol. So Pepe is just one example though of something being co-opted by the alt-right. So when you say that the alt-right was trying to take back Pepe or take Pepe for themselves. Why do you think that they wanted to do it? Was it just kind of a, we're edgy, we're internet people, we want this meme for our community? Or do you think that this meme kind of serves a purpose for the alt-right that they find strategically useful for their political aims? Why would you fight over a cartoon frog, essentially? So Pepe was an easy mascot. And his image became a symbol for all sorts of assigned meanings. A symbol for the alt-right, for example. You know, Pepe wasn't born (laughs) 
with these meanings attached to him. But the fact that memes and imagery just in general can be assigned to certain concepts, ideas, images, videos, what have you. That made Pepe so attractive to the alt-right in many ways because they could spread this picture of an innocent cartoon frog and only those in the know, right? Only those with like the insider status of knowing, oh, Pepe is a symbol of the alt-right are able to, in a very secretive way, almost spread messaging and ideology on even mainstream platforms with people who are not aware of what Pepe was being used for, just scrolling past. So I think in many ways, that's what made Pepe so attractive. The fact that he was just like this anthropomorphic frog, random symbol that had been assigned such weight and such harmful meaning. But then we saw protesters in Hong Kong take him back as a symbol of pro-democracy resistance. So, I mean, that's what's really cool about memes. Memes are what you want them to be and what meaning you want to assign to them. The fact that they're so easily shareable, so easily replicable, makes them really easy to share and to spread meaning. So you have this like insider outsider status, right? For memes like Pepe or whatever, like the okay symbol, like that started as a meme in many ways. And the okay symbol was co-opted to mean white power. It wasn't initially that though. These memes are co-opted. They share information very easily on wide scale platforms. And you know that's what makes memes so powerful and so useful. The fact that you can assign meaning and spread them, but also so harmful because these memes become symbolic of something larger. And that can very easily shift the meaning in a matter of shares, essentially. To touch on something you said just a second ago about how memes can conceal information for the people in the know, that does seem like something useful to neo-Nazis and the alt-right, since if you're posting the Nazi flag on Twitter, there's no ambiguity there. Like, that's a Nazi symbol. You're a Nazi. That is hateful. Case closed. No one will be confused. But if you're posting a weird image of a cartoonish frog, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're promoting a hateful ideology or anything. And if someone asks you about it, you have plausible deniability. But for the people who are kind of in the know sharing this secret language of memes and images, they'll understand what's going on. And it kind of reinforces that community in a this duplicitous way, kind of like hidden in the open. We discussed with the Breonna Taylor memification how it had some potentially negative effects where people became desensitized and used as a punchline more than actually acting on it. Are far-right memes subject to that same issue, or are they more politically useful over the long term? So in this case, what we're looking at is two different meme usages, right? There is the power of memes to conceal meaning and intention in codified shorthand phrases or images, symbolic 
imagery such as Pepe. But then there's also the power of memes to spread things on a very large scale. It's interesting that you bring that up because the fact that we have this structural gimmick in some ways does conceal meaning for the purposes of spreading things on a viral scale to people who are not perhaps attuned to sharing information about police brutality or systemic racism in this country. Allowing that information to reach those audiences from a structural perspective on social media platforms themselves. But it's kind of like twofold, right? So memes can conceal meaning when a group wants them to, but also memes can symbolize certain things for good or for bad. So in the case of Pepe or other alt-right memes, memes in that context really serve to conceal messaging. And that's because those messages are hateful and the fact that they're being concealed really speaks volumes to exactly how these groups are interacting with content. If you're codifying something in very removed ways from the original meaning, like a random cartoon being assigned such hate and weight kind of shows almost the sense of shame that people in this group are feeling sharing that information on platforms online or in real life. But also part of that is to be able to permeate mainstream platforms with specific ideology in ways that, you know, Twitter and Facebook algorithms may not pick up on. The neo-Nazi flag would hopefully be taken down on Twitter. Maybe Pepe wouldn't be. So memes serve many different purposes. In the case of Breonna Taylor, the memes that we saw were ones that still retained their meaning in some ways, right? Like there was still this phrase, arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor, but it was codified to reach a wider audience. That's so interesting how the the content of these memes, both from the right and the left, are designed to take advantage of the algorithms on Twitter and Facebook and these other platforms to reach audiences, particularly those who don't seek out that content. Switching gears kind of to the, the last thing that I want to get to to really conclude this episode is this is for the people listening who are, they care about Black Lives Matter, they care about Breonna Taylor, and they want to know how they can pursue social justice on social media, whether that's because we're still in lockdown from the COVID-19 pandemic or just because social media is becoming ubiquitous and just the way that people are going to be engaging with a lot of this stuff at large. I'm curious what advice you have for well-intentioned people so that they can do the right thing. In this conversation, we see this word slacktivism. We hear this word slacktivism being used. Slacktivism referring largely to social activism done online. And it's really interesting because more people during the pandemic are utilizing forms of slacktivism. Slacktivism isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can be really good. Um, and historically, historically being like the past two decades, when we've seen slacktivism online, it's really serving a purpose for people who can't necessarily get out on the street and show support in that way, right? So for example, folks with physical disabilities who can't make it out to a march 
they can share really valuable information online. And that's arguably just as valuable as being another body in the street, right? In terms of mobilizing on the ground in large scale. Spreading memes and spreading infographics and spreading information online is incredibly valuable because not only does it raise awareness, but it also streams, streamlines resources to those who need it most, right? So a lot of the memes and a lot of the infographics, I'm gonna clump the two together because the way that they're shared almost makes them the same content, like infographics being memes in a way, just in the way that they're spread as social ephemera, almost as pamphlets once were, right? Those infographics and those memes that have phone numbers to police departments or links to GoFundMe pages of families, you know, family victim funds, et cetera, et cetera, bail funds. The ability of the internet and the ability of memetic content to streamline resources to those who need it most makes this variety of slacktivism incredibly valuable to seeing tangible reform on large scale, tangible reform either being through personal education, right? Like sharing information about police abolition or defunding the police or information about anti-racism, anti-racist theory, for example. Memes have the power to share resources on such a large scale to people who might not even know to look for them, right? So we saw so much information being shared in memes about anti-racist theory and literature and information, and then the GoFundMe pages. In that sense, slacktivism is incredibly useful, right? Especially, and then we look at the COVID-19 pandemic, which Breonna Taylor was murdered during the pandemic, or at the beginning of it, rather. George Floyd was murdered during the pandemic. The fact that we see such large groups of people unable to leave their homes now and the fact that slacktivism is providing a way for people to engage in really valuable ways is incredibly important to recognize. Lots of people who weren't able to go to the streets and demand justice with their voices, with their bodies, for Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Tony McDade, any countless other name of a black person murdered by police. The fact that they were able to donate to bail funds and to GoFundMes, family victim funds, that's so valuable because those resources are used then to contribute to a collective movement toward progress and accountability. That's not to say that slacktivism is all good, right? Like we've seen bad slacktivism. We've seen examples that give slacktivism that negative connotation. One example was Blackout Tuesday, where everyone started sharing these black squares on their social media feeds. In those cases, it's almost just performance for social clout rather than activism for change. Totally. Blackout Tuesday was the perfect example of performative activism online. And the reason why that was so harmful um, is because people were sharing like black squares to their social media pages and then also hashtagging them, Black Lives Matter, Justice for George Floyd, arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor, et cetera. And those images were clogging these like integral hashtags that were being used to spread information about movement on the ground that was incredibly valuable. So the problem with Blackout Tuesday was twofold, right? Like it's performative activism, but then also you're gonna clog these integral hashtags that are contributing to active movement on the ground. But for folks at home 
who want to contribute to demands for police accountability and calls for justice. Sharing information online can be really valuable. It's a matter of checking your intention and making sure that the information you're sharing is actually of value to other people and not just performative activism to signal to the world that you care about something because that only serves yourself, right? Like you're not serving anyone but yourself if you are just performing for other people to recognize like, oh, this person cares. So activism can be really good. Just make sure that you are prioritizing black and brown voices. That's really key here. And maintaining your intention and making sure that you're using social media, your platforms as a force of good rather than as a force of social signaling. I think that's really helpful advice for me at least on how to better engage with activism through social media. And with that, I want to thank Tara for joining us this week to discuss the nuanced way that she has been approaching memes and social media communication as a form of political speech for better and for worse. I know my big takeaway is not that it's necessarily good or bad, but that it is definitely complex in ways that I don't know that there are enough people thinking about quite yet. So uh, yeah, Tara, I really appreciate having you on. And also thank you, Brian, for joining me as a co-host this week. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. And with that, we will transition to Class Struggle with Ariana Bennett. And I hope everyone sticks around. All right, welcome back to our newest segment of Class Struggle, where we here at New Perspectives compete for your extra electives. Hosted by me, Ariana Bennett, one of the podcast producers here at Newper. Tara, thank you so much for joining me today. So let me just start by asking you what's your favorite or most impactful class that you've taken here at Northeastern? So I really enjoyed my ethics and journalism class with Dan Kennedy this past semester. It is a required course for journalism majors. I wouldn't have it any other way. I took so much away from the course. And even though it was on Zoom, it was incredibly engaging. Ethics in journalism is a really important topic, especially today in the age of social media usage and online publications, et cetera, et cetera, fake news, misinformation, what have you. So um, that was really, a formative course for me, and I really enjoyed taking it. So then my next question, even though I know you are a fourth year and this is a class kind of late in your career here at Northeastern, how did this class affect maybe a future career path or even looking back or potentially looking forward to co-ops? Totally. So something that we talked a lot about in the ethics and journalism class was the dying newspaper industry and especially the death of local news. That was a huge emphasis in the class. And previously, I really didn't have an interest in local news, but now I do. I definitely would co-op with or work at a local publication, a smaller scale publication. And 
that's definitely something that I hadn't considered previously. So I saw a lot of value in local journalism, in building trust in communities and really being a powerful method of fighting all of the animosity that there is toward the media and all of this like fake news, misinformation sentiment that is really contributing to an atmosphere of diminished trust. So local news is definitely a way to combat that. And I wouldn't have considered that previously if not for the ethics and journalism class. That's very powerful considering your previous conversation on the mummification that we've just all listened to. So thank you so much for joining me again. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I want to thank Tara for joining us on the show to talk about the role of memes and social media in the fight for racial and gender justice. I also want to thank our producers, Brian Grady and Ariana Bennett, for all of their work both on the mic and behind the scenes to bring new perspectives to you. Make sure to check out nupoliticalreview.com for more from Tara and all of the other great writers contributing to Nuper. If you're a Northeastern student looking to be a guest on the show, feel free to email us at nuprpodcast at gmail.com. We're always looking for new guests, and we'd love to have you on the show. Additionally, if you're interested in publishing an article with NUPR, check out the submission link at the top of nupoliticalreview.com to get started. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of New Perspectives. I hope you all have a great day.